Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammon, medievalist and often befuddled reader of Thomas Aquinas. So I'm so delighted to welcome Dr. Fritz Bauerschmidt to the podcast today. Frederick Christian Bauerschmidt is professor of theology at Loyola University, Maryland, specializing in medieval and modern Catholic theology, and a deacon of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, assigned to the Cathedral of Mary, our Queen. He's the author of several books, most recently, The Love That Is God, An Invitation to Christian Faith, The Essential Summa Theologiae, A Reader and Commentary, and How Beautiful the World Could Be, Christian Reflections on the Everyday. I ask everyone two bookish get-to-know-you questions at first. First, and I know this will be hard for you, what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago? Well, I think I'm going to have to just kind of arbitrarily pick one. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose it would be a neck and neck battle between uh, Thomas Aquinas and Julian of Norwich. Two mm. People I've written, I've written books on myself. Um, uh, they're both authors I continually return to. I mean, I've been reading them for over 30 years now, and I just don't get tired of them. I was just before this uh, interview, I was reading Aquinas's commentary on the sentences and just realizing there's so much of Aquinas that I haven't read and he's just consistently interesting. But I also think Julian is, is somebody who's shaped my own way of thinking and my own spirituality. Mm, um, and uh, so I think uh, uh, I find myself constantly recognizing how much she's shaped my own way of thinking about God. So, so I'm going to have to leave it at those two. I can't. <laughs> okay. If you were to like narrow down Thomas to your favorite Thomas reading, what would it be just because his corpus is so huge? Yeah. Well, I mean, of course the Summa Theologiae is uh is it almost doesn't count as a single book, right? Right. Uh, but it's, uh, I mean, I think he really has kind of perfected scholastic form in that. It's yes. so, he's got a kind of clarity that if you look at a lot of other 13th, 14th century scholastic writings, they just, they just don't quite have. No. So much no. easier to read. Um but it's like I, swimming in clear, at like a clear Hawaii beach versus like going swimming in a muddy lake in the mountains somewhere. It's something <laughs> like that. It's also like you have nicely clear, like nice clear lanes laid out oh, yes. you know, to swim in. Um, but if I was going to not choose the Summa Theologiae, one of the things I, one of the things by uh, Thomas that I love are his sermons on the Apostles' Creed, which... Ooh were uh, sermons he preached in the vernacular to a lay audience um, in Naples. So it was in his native Neapolitan dialect. Of course, the only uh, record we have of them are in, is in Latin, so we don't get mm -hmm. Aquinas's uh, actual Neapolitan. But there's just something inspiring about seeing somebody who knew so much trying to figure out out of all the things he knows, what is it that people most need to hear about? Um, so I, I think there's, I've used that as a text with uh, students in intro to theology classes. And 
Um, I don't know. I just, I, I really, I really like it because it's, you know, the corpus is so vast, but this is just a short little series of about 14 sermons. Oh, wow. I'm going to add that to my list right now because um, I really love some of his prayers and, um, but I, and I love that pastoral mode that he has. I have not read that sermon collection, so that's very exciting. Okay, question number two. Which literary character do you most identify with and why? Yeah, that's a great question. I was thinking about that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm tempted to say somebody from a Graham Greene novel. Okay, I, I have a terrible confession. I have not read a Graham Greene novel. Well, if you want to, if you want to see uh, tortured Catholics on display, <laughs> psychologically tortured Catholics on display, uh, that's a a good. Uh, uh, he's a good source to turn to, um, <laughs> but it, uh, it it speaks to my sense of how you can believe in something very firmly and yet consistently fail to live up to this thing that you so firmly mm. believe in. Sounds relatable. <laughs> which, is, which is something that, I mean, Green, all his characters are sort of autobiographical. I mean, he not only wrote this, he embodied it in his life, so... Any anyone in particular that stands out to you? Well, I'm t I would I'd be tempted to say the whiskey priest from The Power and the Glory, except he ends up being quasi heroic, and I don't see myself as particularly heroic. <laughs> um, uh, but it might it might be the 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 main uh, character from the end of the affair, the the male character mm -hmm. uh, who is sort of dragged into some grudging admission of God against all of his, uh, uh, all, all of his intentions. <laughs> all right. Great answers. So I would just like to start off with talking about your book, the love that is God. And you've had others that are more recent, but um, I just finished this one the other day and I thought it was excellent. And I was wondering if you could tell listeners who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet um, a little more about it and about what you were doing there. Um, sure. So the, the genesis of the book is, uh, as a deacon, I preach on a regular basis. And I, I gave a, a homily um, and basically... It was the, the readings were the story of the conversion of Cornelius uh, mm -hmm. in the book of Acts, the section from the first letter of John uh, about, you know, God is love. And then the uh, passage from John's gospel where Jesus says, I call you friends and no greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for his friends. Um, and as I was preparing to preach, I thought, well, these these three passages, that they're really kind of almost like all you need. Mm -hmm. right? uh, they're your desert island Bible. <laughs> and uh, so I gave uh, a homily where I said, you know, being a Christian is really hard, but what Christianity is about is really simple. And I boiled it down to five points. You know, that God is love. Uh, the love that is God is crucified love. Um, that we're called to be friends with the risen Christ, uh, that we can't love God without loving each other, 
and that we live out our love in the community called the church. Um, and somebody said to me after I gave this homily, you know, I wish my daughter had been here to, to hear you. So daughter's sort of, you know, uh, 20-something, uh, has pretty much no time for the church. And she said, I, you know, you just really focused on what was so essential about Christianity. And I just wish she could have heard that. And because she's so hung up on all these other aspects of the church that she disagrees with, that she doesn't like. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really wish she could have heard this. And, and that kind of got me thinking, like, well, you know, maybe other people would like to hear this. So mm -hmm. I sat down, I actually ended up, because I, I missed a flight, having a 12-hour wait in an airport, and I had my laptop with me, so I started writing the first chapter, and it all just <laughs> kind of, uh, it all flowed out pretty easy, partly because teaching for over 25 years, I've, you know, I've thought a lot about how you try and make Christianity attractive to people who are not inclined to be attracted to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I actually wrote the whole thing in about six weeks. So uh, certainly Fast. I'd say it's both the fastest book I've ever written because I wrote it in six weeks, but it's also the slowest book I've ever written because it took me 25 years of thinking about it. Right. <laughs> material. There you go. You were, you had been primed for a very, very long time. Yes. Yes. Um, so, so those five points each become a, a chapter in the book. Um, and actually, as I was thinking about the book in relation to your podcast, I was actually thinking, you know, there's a sense in which this really is a book of medieval theology. It is. Actually, I, I thought exactly the same thing as I was reading it. But you, you say why you think so. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, I mean, partly because uh, I've taught a lot of these, these figures uh, over, over the years, um, they're the ones who are kind of ready to hand in my mind, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for making my points. And so, you know, there's lots of Augustine who is either the last man of late antiquity or the first man of the Middle Ages. Yes. He can play on both teams. Um, you know, there's a lot of Aquinas, of course. Uh, there's lots of Catherine of Siena, Julian of Norwich, and there's even Chaucer. Uh, There's yeah, actually I, quite a bit of Chaucer, really. Yeah, I use the Knight's Tale as a kind of a, a touchstone throughout the book um, for its depiction of, I guess what I would say is how human love can go awry. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, was, I was thinking, I mean, in some ways, these are figures that I love, but also I recognize might be for many modern people a hard sell. Yes. And I really wanted to show how, you know, the Christian tradition is full of riches. And it's not like, you know, we Christians have this horrible tradition we're trying to live down. I mean, we do have things we're trying to live down. <laughs> right. It's not like we just have that. Right. Um, we also have a tradition that's like a treasure trove. And we just need to find the right key to, to get into it. Yes. And so part of the attempt in the book to persuade people of the beauty of the Christian faith is to bring out what I think are some of the most profound things that have been said in, in the Christian tradition. Um, so I, I, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, yeah, I got a lot of medieval people in that book. Yeah. Well, I think they're some of the church's most beautiful voices that really we hardly ever listen to in modernity, but 
or, or we listen to them filtered through, you know, funny things or whatever. But, uh, I think your interest in beauty in this book and in the gold kind of within, uh, Christianity, they're so good at uh, not all of them. A lot of medieval history is bloody and violent, but a lot of medieval writers like the ones you mentioned, Julian, Catherine, Thomas, Augustine, they are, have such riches and such interest in beauty specifically. Yeah. And I think perhaps it's because they lived in a world that was so ugly. Yes. Yeah. um, That they, their ability to see beauty was, uh, really fine tuned. Yes, because right? it wasn't it wasn't easy to to see the beauty in the That's world. That's right. I I like that, and I think too, for me and and maybe for a lot of other people living now, that's. Um, something I am mining from them as I'm feeling like the world is a very dark, difficult place to be in this moment and, and turning to these voices from the past who have become adept at seeing God's face, at seeing Christ in other people, at seeing the beauty of creation um, is, is a real treasure. It's such a gift. Yeah, of course, the other figure who it strikes me as kind of omnipresent throughout the book is Nietzsche. <laughs> he is. And yeah. I, I, can th- I think of the book in some ways as a dialogue or a conversation between Nietzsche and all of these medieval writers, um, who he would, of course, be very, very dismissive of. Yes. Yes, it... <laughs> That would be a funny conversation, but yes, <laughs> but you're right. Um, he, he's, he's got a prominent voice, which is really interesting. Um, I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed from it is um, you quote the wonderful mid-century philosopher, Joseph Pieper, um, who says that to love something or someone is to say, I am glad you exist. And I love his word gladness there because it's really a simple word, but it's also bone deep. Like we all know what gladness feels like. Um, And I think a lot of people would say that the church does not communicate that to them today. I am glad you exist. Um, And you also write commenting on the first letter of John, you cannot be friends with God. You cannot share the life of the risen Jesus if you do not love other people. And this love can't be, um, now this is me, this love can't be abstract out in space, but the real people that we share our lives with. And so I was thinking as I read and wondering what you thought, how do you think the church can get better at saying to people, I am glad you exist and really meaning it, showing it? Well, probably by not treating them as problems to be managed, Yes. right? Um, I, I think that... Uh, certainly, you know, as a, as a Roman Catholic, you know, we've got, you know, institutional structures out the wazoo and we can become very, very, and I think institutional structures are really important. You know, they do a lot of good in the world, but they also do a certain amount of harm. And I think they do the most harm when they become, when the perpetuation of those structures becomes an end in itself. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, one way in which, the church could say to people, I'm glad you exist, is not initially approach them as a, as a problem to be, to be managed. 
Hmm. Um, and so I, I think, uh, I mean, the, the church is often just a kind of a joyless place. Yes. Now, I, I find moments of joy, you know, within the church. Uh, but there, there's just a lot of anxiety, right? As if we don't really believe in Christ's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail. Yes. It's like, we've got we've to keep everybody in line. Man, and, the and, gates and, defend them. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I actually admire about the medieval church is how incredibly messy it was. Yes. Right? I mean, we have this image of, you know, the church is, the, and the church was a dominant institution in the Middle Ages, of course, maybe the dominant institution, uh, certainly in scope. And yet at the same time, there's all sorts of weird stuff going on in the church. Yes. And I think some of it was the church just didn't have the apparatus to kind of monitor everything uh, the way that we do in the modern world, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, if I start spouting off on Twitter some crazy stuff, uh, this will get reported to my bishop in a nanosecond. But if I was off in my little medieval village, you know, standing on the street corner spouting stuff off, it could take months to get to the bishop. If it ever got <laughs> so I, I think the medieval church actually was a much less rigid institution mm-hmm. than we sometimes imagine it to be. Mm-hmm. And I guess because it was less rigid, maybe it was more joyful. Mm. We don't associate the Middle Ages with joy, I don't think. We, don't, we tend to not associate medieval Christianity with joy. Uh, you know, it's all skull and crossbones and flagellants. And, you know, it's, it's, I, that's a kind of modern, the modern view of the gloomy dark ages, right? But I actually think the medieval church kind of excelled in its capacity for joy and festivity. And I think we've kind of lost a lot of that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, viewing the medieval church through uh, post-Reformation eyes, uh, both by Catholics and Protestants, uh, dis- distorted um, some of the, when you read it in, now, you you start to realize, oh yeah, I've I've picked up all these narratives that I just unconsciously. I didn't even know that they were narratives and that they were coming into my brain. But um, I I do think that the joy of the medieval church and the strangeness of it, and that I like that you link those two, actually. I think there's something really fruitful there that um, I think the church is worried often, whatever kind of church it is, I think you could pick one out of a hat, um, of Christianity, I mean, of course, but get so caught up in, in towing the line or in like not wanting to um, just see what, uh, see what joy looks like, see what uh, a celebration might look like. Uh, it has to be a certain way. And the medieval church had some really weird celebrations and really weird festivals and times of being together that you read as someone today. And, um, and it's surprising and fun and exciting. And I, I do think, but how, how would that look? Do you think like practically speaking for right now, adopting some of the medieval spirit towards joy in the church? Well, that's a really great question. Uh, 
partly because I think the the medieval church served this function. I mean, it was the place where where there were bright colors and yes. beautiful sounds. It was and, the source of beauty in so much of ordinary life right. on a very and on a very now, concrete level. Right, and now we all carry these screens in our pockets that we can pull out, and they're they're much brighter than anything we can see in church. Yes, <laughs> and so I think it's a. Uh, I think there's a, a real challenge. Um, I mean, I do think, though, the church has a 2,000-year tradition, and it should lean into that tradition. Uh, I think we shouldn't be afraid if our worship seems a little weird. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical about attempts to make, you know, the what we do in in church look like everything that goes on outside the church. I think yes. that's ultimately a losing formula. Now, yes. I don't want to say we should have a, you know, worship frozen in amber, um, no. <laughs> you know, reproducing the, the 14th century or something. Uh, but a little bit of that, I mean, that would get people's attention. And that yeah. would uh, suggest, a, I don't know, a certain kind of freedom. Oddly enough, I think traditions like that can actually be quite freeing. It frees you from the tyranny of having to be a person of your own day. Yes, definitely. I'd also get rid of all the pews in churches so that would you go back to standing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the you know the Orthodox have this right. You just need to let people get them out of rows. I mean, the idea that we all need to be regimented in rows. Let people just wander around during church. Oh, I do. It'd be kind so of much love easier that. with little kids, right? It if would you be. Keep you. Yeah, yeah, if you had chairs for the folks who needed to sit, and then you just had sort of free form. Yeah. I mean, I did, there's something really appealing about that. And I've never really thought about that. I always, I actually love kind of shocking people by telling them there was no seat, no official seating in medieval churches for the most part, a few kind of seats for dignitaries and, you know, folks who needed it, but really that it was super open. Um, and people find that so shocking, but I kind of love the idea of bringing it back. There's something well, there. I feel like, you know, I've gone to like concerts and, so after I've stood up for over an hour. I mean, there's yeah. no problem standing for over an hour. I mean, people do it at sporting events and, you know, uh, so I'd, I'd be totally in favor of just unleashing the people from their, from their confinement in the pews and just seeing what they do. <laughs> that would be interesting. I mean, it, it's like teaching um, a, a, a class, a college. I, I used to teach, um, like writing 101 all the time and I would every now and then if it were a room with not with a table with people around it but if it were desks I would switch up the organization of the desks like in random patterns and it would totally change the feel of the entire session the entire class session because people then have to reorient themselves in space and a lot of the time it was an icebreaker and it was a moment where people felt like, oh, I've been released in some way. I am freer now than I was before to try out a new thought or try out something different. Um, yeah. Which also, is always also when, I'm teaching, when I'm teaching a seminar, I'll, I'll every, every class I'll sit in a different spot 
around the table Mm -hmm. because, you know, students like to choose their seat in terms of proximity to the professor. Most don't (laughs) want to be very close to you. Right. So I undermine this by, it's particularly good if I've got chalkboards at either end of the room, because then I can just bounce back and forth between the two sides of the room. And it's, it's very disconcerting to the students. (laughs) Yes. Unpredictable. So speaking of tradition, um, you talk about tradition in the book as well. And here was another quote that I really liked of yours, which is, tradition is not so much a body of propositions to be believed or fixed practices to be carried out, as it is a vast and sprawling conversation extended across time and space in which we discern together where the spirit is blowing. So how do you see tradition as conversation in action? Well, I think uh, I'm pretty clearly in that in that description of tradition uh, showing the influence of Alistair McIntyre. Yes, it's very McIntyre-y, yes. Yeah, except he wouldn't mention word. the Holy Spirit. No, he wouldn't, he wouldn't. Um, so I think he believes in the Holy Spirit, but yes. I, I don't think he'd mention it. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, McIntyre has clearly influenced my, my way of thinking about tradition, uh, but also I think behind McIntyre as an influence on him and also an influence on me is, is Wittgenstein mm-hmm. and Wittgenstein's uh, image of, of, the, of language as a city that kind of grows organically and can't really, I mean, you can map it, but it doesn't follow kind of pre-de- uh, predetermined course. And so I think, uh, you know, I mean, tra- tradition is an interesting, it's, it's interesting to think about as a process, uh, because a lot of times people think that tradition is really about the past, mm-hmm. but actually tradition is really about the future, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, tradition is not just reaching back in the past and pulling it into the present. It's also about taking that past that you've pulled into the present and figuring out how to hand it on to the future. Right? Yes. And I think we forget that future orientation that the, the tradition as a process uh, has. So, um, uh, so I don't think of, of tradition as simply, you know, turning to, to look to the past. And I would never describe myself as, a, as much as I love tradition in the broad sense and traditions. I mean, my wife will tell you I like doing nothing better than what I've done before. <laughs> um, I, I think it, tradition is a process. It's always good to remember that orientation towards, towards the future and mm-hmm. wanting to give something to the future and not simply get something from the past. Mm-hmm. I think traditionalists often forget that because they can be so oriented towards the past that they're not at all thinking about, well, how do I take this thing from the past and bequeath it to a future that's going to be quite different from the past from which I've received it. Yes. Right. And so in some ways, I think tradition and innovation actually go hand in hand because the only way you can hand on the past to the future is through acts of creative innovation. Yes. And that's the delicate balance, right? Trying to be both faithful to the past and yet, uh, innovative enough to make that past meaningful to the future. Yes, I think that's true. And and I think it, it pushes back against this conception of tradition, you know, to use your, your earlier 
simile, like tradition as the sort of massive amber or whatever that you're like, here is this discrete object that we are handling very tenderly and carefully, um, which I think is how a lot of people respond to the idea of tradition, where it's just, it's your grandmother's heirloom china and you're terrified of even ever using it because you you know that you're going to break it because it's so delicate. You know, there's this sort of aura of um, caution and be careful, be careful around it that um, that makes it feel, when you have that attitude towards it, it makes it feel really irrelevant to just a regular daily life of living. It's something you bring out on special occasions and you're terrified the whole time. Um, it, instead of this uh, active idea of tradition as creating space and communities that include the people of the past, the people of the present and the people of the future and having that unique space. Yeah, and I, I think um, in terms of your earlier question about you know, sort of the, the, la the frequent lack of joy in the church, I mean, I think some of it is because it doesn't understand its own tradition as something that's actually durable. Yes. Um, it's like, we've got we've to gotta make sure we don't break grandma's china, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, so I, I think if the church would be a more joyful place if we actually trusted the power of our tradition. Yes. And, and uh, had a certain kind of freedom with them. Yes. Um, I, have a, uh, I have a set of dishes that were my parents' everyday dishes. And so they got married in 1958. So this, these, are, these are genuine antiques at this point. And we use them as our everyday dishes. And one of them's gotten kind of chipped. And, you know, that, that makes me sad. But what would make me even sadder is if they just sat in a closet for the last 25 years unused. Yes. And, uh, and that's what dishes are made for too. And that's right. kind of the, the parallel to this idea where traditions aren't, I think a healthy living tradition isn't one that you're, that you are walking and, you know, care just so carefully around. The gift of a dish is being a dish in all its dishness and eating off of it. Right. And our, right. The, I think the, the best um, traditions the big long traditions of the church have that durability, the dishness where you go, Oh, this is so valuable and so wonderful. And so, um, so helpful. So useful actually, which is su such a funny conception, but. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting for me reading medieval biblical commentaries, right? Yes. I mean, one of the things that medieval, I mean, medieval biblical commentaries are just, this nest of traditions, right? Because so much of them consist of quoting other people from the past, right? So I know Aquinas is particularly well, and, you know, you read his commentary on John's gospel, and it's just all this stuff pulled from, uh, from Chrysostom, from Augustine, from Gregory the Great, from Bede, and it's just this sort of nest of all these other voices, but Aquinas is also very free with it. It's not like, okay, we've now got the answer because we have this tradition. Yes. Right? No, the tradition is so messy. It like opens up all these possibilities. And Aquinas will say, well, Augustine says this about this passage and Chrysostom says this exact opposite thing. And well, I guess both of these can be true. <laughs> yeah. 
I love that about reading medieval uh, medieval commentaries. And yeah, I also like, love... Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, why not? And, and what I really like too is that um, sometimes I read uh, medieval sermons or medieval commentaries and they are just so strange. Like, especially when they get into the like n- numerical stuff, they start talking about like the significance of each and every number in this passage about the Israelites or whatever. And, and you're just like, I just don't read it that way at all. I don't understand at all how, you know, what good this brings to the passage or anything, but that very challenge of like, Hey, Traditions of of reading scripture and reading scripture is big enough that it can stand up to all these different types and kinds of reading. And it just makes me feel in um, as a, as a modern reader, so much less possessive over my interpretation of the text and a lot freer. And, um, and, and I really love that. (laughs) Yeah. I, when I teach undergraduates and we, we read medieval text, I mean, I, I always tell them one of the main reasons, aside from the intrinsic value of these texts, yes. some of them have interesting ideas or they're beautifully written or whatever, but the other value is just to dislodge us from our own presuppositions yes. and to make us aware that we have these presuppositions about yes. how you should interpret a biblical text or what the relationship between men and women should be or, you know, how we should think about God, right? Yes. And it can be so liberating to realize that not everybody's always thought this way. Yes. I mean, the, the past is an alien country in, in many ways. And, um, you know, yeah, we could be reading about, you know, tribes in Borneo and be going, well, you know, there's a lot of variety in the human experience, but we could also be reading about French peasants in the 12th century and go, <laughs> wow, there's a lot of variety in the human experience. That's right. And it just, I think it takes away a certain amount of the anxiety of um, really having to be uh, right all the time um, of in, in reading um, spiritually or in reading where you're just able to have a, a humility towards towards what you're reading and go, yeah, I don't really understand what that means. And, and that's okay. And there's a true value in understanding I'm a time-bound creature wrapped in the, my limitations. And um, I'm not always going to understand what things mean. Um, and that's such a joy, uh, an unexpected joy of reading these books from the past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I figure if somebody like Aquinas can't decide whether Augustine or Chrysostom is right, you know, not only do I not have to decide that, but I might be able to disagree with both of them. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, So tradition is conversation takes it out of specialized settings. It moves it into our daily life. Um, And I'd like to ask you beyond just, uh, beyond teaching, reading, and enjoying medieval theologians, which you do all the time, um, how have you found they've shaped you specifically as a professor, a deacon, a family member, etc.? Well, I, I would say that, and I'm not sure if this is, is them shaping my experience or my experience shaping my reading <laughs> of them, but uh, the book I wrote a, a few years ago on Thomas Aquinas was locating Aquinas in the context of the Dominican 
order mm-hmm. and their, uh, their, their task of preaching in the care of souls. And uh, one of the things that I, I do think about a lot is, you know, I've spent my life learning a lot of theology, but I'm also an ordained deacon in the Catholic Church. And so how do I take what I have learned to use in the classroom and how do I use it in the pulpit? Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly don't do it exactly the way that Thomas Aquinas does. I mean, if you read his sermons, I could not get up and preach <laughs> like that and expect to get a very warm reception. Uh, you know, o tempore o mores, you know, it's, uh, it's different times. Different times. <laughs> but uh, I do find it inspiring that Aquinas really thought of his theology being at, at the service of preaching. Mm-hmm. And this way, not unlike Karl Barth. You know, yes, I think they, yes. they both actually see uh, theology as as being at the at the service of the, the proclamation of God's word, and so I I have been inspired by Aquinas to you know I mean because so much preaching at least in the Catholic Church basically you spend uh, you know you only generally you know they only preach for about eight minutes mm-hmm. right I go a little bit longer but not much uh, <laughs> and they spend the first five simply retelling what happened in the gospel reading as if he didn't just hear it right and then they spend three minutes giving a little moral fervorina and that's it you mm-hmm. know and it's it's like well I've spent my life studying a lot of theology I think I'm going to try and do something more than that yes. Uh, with my eight minutes or 10 minutes or however long I get. Um, and I find Aquinas is a, is a kind of an inspiration uh, mm-hmm. in that, in that regard to like, keep your, keep your preaching theological and, and you can actually get people interested in theological issues because yes. God's actually interesting. Yes. God's a lot more interesting than we are. Yeah. Well, I think it's funny because it's actually, uh, <laughs> I think most, a lot of people who haven't been interested in theological questions or theology, it's just because it it hasn't really been exposed. Like, like they just haven't really been exposed to it in, in outside of a very dry or academic context. But when you are asking people questions and presenting questions from people like Thomas Aquinas, it opens up a whole new world. Yeah, a few a few months ago, some point early in Lent, I uh, gave a gave a homily where I I said, okay, for this homily we're going to do metaphysics, and I talked about Augustine's notion of evil as the privation of good. Yes, uh, and then kind of made this application of well, what this means is no one and no thing is purely evil, and so when we start seeing people being depicted as oh, this was pure evil. You know, as Christians, we we got we've got to say no. That's not that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. and, and and I think you really see this actually in Augustine um, uh, with his. Uh, I mean, he has that wonderful line in the, I think it's in the City of God, where he says, "No one is so good that they can't become evil, and no one's so evil that they can't become good." Mm-hmm. And so, I think it it makes you think about the nature of our justice system. And so I was kind yes. of made some of these practical applications. It was right near the uh, beginning of the invasion of Ukraine. And I said, look, Vladimir Putin is about as good a candidate as we have today of somebody who's purely evil. But we as Christians know this cannot be the yes. case. So how do we think about Vladimir Putin? Um, and uh, I had people after this Probably saying, well, when you said metaphysics, I got really nervous, but <laughs> that was really pretty interesting. <laughs> my, 
<laughs> my old advisor uh, used to always say that um, everyone is born a metaphysician and then they're like taught out of it basically, but that all little kids, you, you see that you have a conversation with any young child and you're like, oh yeah, you're a metaphysician. You're a natural metaphysician. Yeah. What does it mean for something to exist? Yeah. Why, why is it that why? way? Why did it, yeah, did it have to be you? that way? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Modal, modal logic, possibility, necessity. You know? Yes, exactly. No, all these little scholastics running around and we just unfortunately tend to beat the scholasticism out of them. Uh, yeah, but, but how are they ever going to find their way in the world without like learning a little metaphysics and logic? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what drew you to medieval theology in the first place? Because as we've been saying, it's not exactly on its face, the most appealing of topics or subtopics for that matter. Um, how did you start reading the folks of the past? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I guess um, I did have a sense that as a Catholic theologian, I should know something about Thomas Aquinas. Yes. You know? So, uh, but I think, what really, what initially drew me in were uh, what we would typically call the, the mystical writers. Yes. Um, so I actually uh, converted to Catholicism in my early 20s, back in mm -hmm. 1982. And uh, one of the influences, one of the things that led me to, uh, uh, to Catholicism was reading the writings of Thomas Merton. Hmm. And I remember the, there's the line in the seven story mountain where he talks about when he arrives at the Abbey of Gethsemane is right towards the end of the book. He, uh, they give him a habit to wear and he says, it takes him a long time to figure out how to put on the medieval underwear. <laughs> so Thomas Merton was basically a modern man living a medieval life. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons, one of the things that makes him interesting, right. Is that, mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's both. Right. Yes. Um, yes. And, it, but but Merton got me interested in the, the the mystical tradition, and so I ended up. Uh, I, I was originally interested in sort of philosophical questions about the nature of mystical experience. You know, hmm. can you have an experience that has no object? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of then decided that was a dead end, <laughs> and that in order to really understand any of these figures, I had to kind of understand the historical context from which mm -hmm. they were writing. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up focusing on Julian of Norwich and uh, basically figured I, figured I had to learn a lot about the 14th and 15th centuries in order to really understand what was going on in her, her writings, both the intellectual culture, and of course there's all sorts of questions with Julian about how much access to that intellectual yes. culture she had, but also the material culture and what's going on in the political world and the relationship between lords and servants, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, so that kind of then kind of drew me into the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And then when I, when I started teaching at Loyola, one of the things I've had the great fortune of being able to do for many years now is teach the students in our honors program. And they have a course they take called the Medieval World mm -hmm. uh, that I get to teach them. And it's some theology, but also some philosophy, some history, some literature. And that's, you know, given me the opportunity to teach them texts like Chaucer and Beowulf and um, uh, very, 
the Divine Comedy, um, to read primary sources on the Black Death or the Crusades or the investiture controversy, uh, in addition to you know, reading some Aquinas, reading some Julian, reading some Augustine. So uh, teaching that course has also been a, a great way for me to think about how do we enter imaginatively into the lives of these, these medieval people. Because um, teaching is really the best way to ever learn anything. Totally. It is. That's so, that is really fun. Um, I feel like the, the mystics are a lot of people's path into reading the past. Julian is sort of the gateway drug of, of like entering the wacky world of medieval literature. And I love that about her. Yeah. And, and I mean, I've been reading Julian so long now that it's always good for me to teach it to students because it makes me aware of just how strange it is. I yes. mean, you know, the bleeding crucifix and, you know, all the kind of the riot of images that she uses. Um, and I often will ask students when we read when we read her, so let's take a poll, who thinks she's just insane? <laughs> and that that's all that's going on here. And there's always a few brave souls who say, I mean, they know that's not the right answer. And that's not what I think <laughs> is the right answer. But there's always a few brave souls who'll say, yeah, I just think she's bonkers. Yes. Or she's sick and she's clearly hallucinating. And I said, well, you'll notice that's her first instinct too. That's, what yes. that's a great thing about Julian, where she talks about how the priest came to her and yes. she said, you know, I was raving. I thought I saw the crucifix bleeding. And, and it's like, so look, if you think she's crazy, she doesn't disagree with you. I mean, that's yes. what her first thought was as well, right? And in some ways that makes them able to identify with her. It's like, look, she can be skeptical about her own experience. You know? Yes. Um, so, so one, it's okay for you to be skeptical about her experience, but two, it might also, maybe you should take her a little bit more seriously since she's not completely unself-critical. Yes. So. Yeah. And, and relatedly, I think, um, people are often more convinced too, that she's not just, you know, raving when you think about her, her own process of interpretation that she then sits on it for years and thinks about it after her initial experience, writing down one version and then writing another years and years and years later. And, and when I've, when I've taught her or, or led a, a discussion of her in groups, people find that super interesting and, um, and convincing in a different kind of way as well, because that's just not what we associate with somebody hallucinating during an illness. Right. I mean, Julian is a hard thinker. I mean, she, she, is. Is. she is a thinker. I mean, that's what yeah. it's not some uh, sort of woo woo, like mystical, you know, experience tripping on some, it's, it's something very uh, concrete and, deliberate that she does with it which I find fascinating yeah. um yeah. okay so as a as a longtime professor now um how what would you recommend to the people listening who are inspired by what you're saying about Thomas or um Julian or other medieval thinkers but especially someone like Thomas who is honestly so hard to pick up and read on your own outside of the academy or outside of like a classroom setting 
Um, what would you recommend for people who are looking to start reading works of theology on their own practices, particular texts, resources, all that kind of stuff? Well, I get to recommend my own book. Yes. <laughs> so I, I recently published the second edition of what's called the Essential Summa Theologiae. And what it is, is a, it's selections from the Summa, uh, really, particularly in the second edition, covering a a, a representative range of, of the topics Aquinas discusses. Uh, and then along the bottom, a kind of running commentary in mm. the form of footnotes that are designed to, you know, explain the, you know, give historical context, explain unfamiliar terms, uh, sometimes chart out a complex argument. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of like, you know, Thomas with training wheels and I'm the training wheels. Excellent. <laughs> uh, and, in some ways, it's it's modeled on the course that I teach on Thomas Aquinas because mm -hmm. the goal of the course is by the end, the students should be able to ride Thomas without training wheels. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's no way you're going to cover everything Thomas says in a course, but you can learn to read him in a way that's almost like learning to read a foreign language. Yes. And, you know, you get the basic grammar down, you get a basic vocabulary, uh, you can read anything in that language. You might have to look up a word now and then, but you can read anything. And, and so I teach Thomas, in a sense, trying to get them to the point where they could pick up the Summa, or these days, more likely, find it online, and just read an article by Thomas and actually have a sense of what's going on in it, because they'll have understood the, the structures of his thoughts. So... I, my book, The Essential Summa Theologiae, I think, is exactly what people need uh, to kind of get into reading Thomas Aquinas. Because you're actually reading Thomas himself from the get-go. You're not reading my thoughts about Thomas. Right. I mean, He's not those, been pre-digested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not pre-digested. Um, and I do try and cover, you know, uh, both the things that are really great in Thomas and some of the things that aren't so great, like... I, in the second edition, include um, his discussion of whether it's okay to kill heretics. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I don't, you know, I don't want to present a, a Thomas who uh, thinks exactly the way we do. Yes. And isn't maybe in his own way bound to certain ideas that uh, from his day that we think are not very good ideas anymore. So. Yes. Yeah. And it goes back to our, our earlier conversation about tradition and how you approach it. When you're reading someone like Thomas, approaching him either like everything he said is reified and set in stone and, oh, I better switch whatever I'm believing to make it accord with what he's saying will lead you down some difficult pathways that aren't might not be the best ones, like burning heretics. Um, yeah. But being able to actually read him as some as somebody that you are dialoguing with, that you are learning from, that you are arguing with, is a real gift. Yeah, I mean Thomas Aquinas can defend himself. He doesn't. He can He doesn't. No, he doesn't need you to protect him. He's not right. worried about it. Like, right. Exactly. <laughs> He's a big boy. He can take care of himself. Exactly. Well, that's and what he's I now say. in heavenly glory, so he can really take care of himself. He so. extra doesn't care now. <laughs> exactly. He, he really does not. He's not going to be fussed if you're like, I, I don't, I don't agree with what you're saying. 
Um, and you so, might even say, hey, I don't agree with that anymore either. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's kind of one of the joys of reading scholasticism. Uh, well, his his brand of scholasticism is something like the Summa, is that it is open to further argument. It's not a, sh- a shut, concluded, well, all right, we, we fixed that problem. Let's move on to the next. Yeah, it is interesting how in our kind of modern perceptions, scholasticism is some sort of closed system. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at least in its origins, no, it was a wild and woolly debate. I mean, yes. it, scholasticism is, you know, once Ab- Peter Abelard lined up all those patristic sources and showed how they disagreed with each other, that just blew the roof off of theology. And, <laughs> and you know, and the schola- at least in the first few centuries, I mean, yeah, they want to make sense out of what's going on, but they're also kind of reveling in yes. the, the, the fact that the tradition is speaking with all these multiple voices and it's not entirely clear whether it's a cacophony or a symphony. Yes, absolutely. And it, I think sometimes we just trick ourselves as modern readers because we're reading it in this highly specialized vocabulary that can be very difficult as a, an outsider to enter into. Um, and and so we mistake it for something that is very, very formal in the sense of like, don't disturb it, uh, you know, better act the part as you read it. Um, but yeah. yeah. Just today I was uh, reading uh, St. Bonaventure's sentences commentary on the, uh, the baptismal formula. And he actually entertains the, the question of, well, what if, uh, while saying, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the priest interrupts himself, you know, like he sneezes <laughs> or he says, hey, this water's cold. Uh, or he goes to take a pee. <laughs> and he concludes that if it's a long interruption, like going to take a pee, then he's got to start all over again for it to really work. Uh, but if, if if he just sneezes or makes a brief aside, he can probably just keep going. <laughs> and uh, undoubtedly, you know, in the what, Franciscan convent where Bonaventure was living at the time, undoubtedly they had all sorts of funny stories about things that happened during baptisms. <laughs> oh, they were sure. around. <laughs> so presumably somebody got halfway through a baptism and decided that they needed to go pee because I guess the sound of running water or something. <laughs> the question had come up clearly. They were like, well, clearly. what do we do yeah. now? Um, He's not pulling this out of thin air. This is, this <laughs> probably actually happened. Yes. Um, okay. So um, we're about to wrap up, but um, is there a way that people, listeners who are interested can reach you? Do you have a presence on social media, um, anywhere that they can find you? Um, yeah, they can, uh, they can find me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so at Bowerschmidt C, I'm not quite sure how my Twitter handle ended up being that, but so it's at Bowerschmidt C. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I generally just post things that I uh, have read that I find interesting or amusing, you know, from uh, I'm reading a lot of early modern philosophy now. So lots of quotations from Pascal and Spinoza, um, amusing things that found in Spinoza's ethics. All right. Very exciting. And then last question for you. Simon, you got to hold on a sec, buddy. Go on out. 
I have a kid in the Your background. Dog, not dead. Yeah, dog, kid. We're good to go. Um, are there any medieval writers or theologians that you think are overrated? Ooh, writers or theologians were overrated. Um, gosh, I'm gonna. I can't really answer that without making somebody mad. I sometimes <laughs> think Chaucer's a little overrated. Uh, you know what? I will back you up on that. I love Chaucer. Don't get me wrong, but the whole father of English literature shtick and all that. I, I kind of, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I think Chaucer might be just a little bit overrated. There's good stuff in there, and it of can be course. very amusing. But of course. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go with Chaucer. Okay, I can, yeah, you know, I think that's a pretty good answer. You know, I got to say that um, I think <laughs> he's just talked up so much. And then when you read him, it's it's kind of like seeing a movie that you've heard everybody else talk about a lot. And then you see the movie and you're like, oh, that was it. I kind of feel that way about Chaucer a little bit, but... Yeah. He's great. But yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I um I am so glad you could be here. Well, I'm glad you invited me. I'm uh it's it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again. Well, this has been the last episode of this season of Old Books with Grace. Pretty crazy. I'm so thankful for all of the wonderful guests who came on to chat with me, and I just really enjoyed our conversations this year. If you'd like to support Old Books with Grace and help me keep it going as a podcast, you can do so um, on the website, oldbookswithgrace.com. There's a link for um, the Buy Me a Coffee website, and you can um, support fees and especially in particular books that I buy in order to uh, do good research and keep the materials coming. If you'd like to keep in touch with me over the summer in this summer hiatus, I am online at Instagram at Old Books with Grace, on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD, and I have a really fun monthly newsletter called Medievalish with Grace Hammond. It's free. You get a free Julian of Norwich printable when you sign up for it. And each month has uh, a prayer from the past and a literary or spiritual um, short meditation, as well as what I've been reading and working on lately. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts about this episode or any other, and you can reach out to me um, on social media or at oldbookswithgrace.com. Uh, There's a contact form. Thanks again for listening this year. I so appreciate it.